Jason, what's going on, man? What's up, Curtis? Good, good, good to see you. Good. Where you at? You in DC? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So you, you see, see, I got my you ain't black Joe Biden shirt on. Look, you know what? I'm gonna be honest with you. I look right past it and see black, white, and blue, and I'm like, oh, oh you supporting your documentary? That's that's smart. Always, man. Always, always, man. Uh, well, what's going on with you, man? What you got on your mind? Well, you know, I, I saw you tweeting the other day about uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, and yeah. it made me go watch the movie. And then it made watching the movie made me go read a bunch of stuff. And then it made me go, I went and watched the 1971 documentary about called titled The Murder of Fred Hampton. Uh, I, I went back and looked at the, his Wikipedia page to see how they updated it since the movie came out and went all the way back to, I think, 2004 when it was originated, just, just trying to get a deeper understanding of what they were trying to accomplish with the movie. I, I found the movie fascinating. I found the movie, you know, typically disappointing and just, you know, Marxist, propaganda directed at young black people and and just the, the the whole movies that are directed at us man in the last five years all have the same agenda it, it's it's how can we describe the african-american journey or dynamic or issue in this country as black people versus the police Seems like every movie now. I mean, again, because I, I said I asked some friends of mine um, yesterday. I was like, "Look, man, what do we? Who do we engage with and have conflict with on a regular basis? Wives, girlfriends, kids, parents, grandparents, coworkers. Uh, you know, laundry list of people. What what do we do every day? And I go, but if you watch movies, you would think our life is centered around." engagement and conflict with police. Ask yourself how often you actually engage with the police, let alone have conflict with them, compared to what you normally do on a daily basis. But that's the only movie that can be told is, because school and I mean, I've been around 53 years. I haven't had a lot of engagement with police. And, you know, the, most of the, let's say I've been pulled over 20 times, 19 of them is because I was speeding. And, mm -hmm. <laughs> but I, I just, this whole Hollywood dynamic of put like our story in America is about our relationship with the police. And I find that offensive. And that's what I thought, you know, among other things, that's what I thought Judas and the Black Messiah was about like, look, you know, black people in the police, that, that's your whole life can be told through that prism. I just reject that. You know, uh, I see what you're saying and, and, and I agree. But what I also see is that every group of people need a unifying force, right? So the Germans, we know they use the Jews and um, 
I think the black community has decided that the unifying force for us is going to be the police. And I think other than then you can't you can't say white people because they need the support of some whites. So they don't want to alienate all whites. So the whites they're going to target are going to be the police and conservative whites. That way they can still secure the support of the left, the liberal whites. I think it's a strategy that's run its course and, and has gone awry. And that, that's really how I see it. I have had interactions with the police, but I'm also man enough to say, I put myself in that situation. It didn't happen because I was black. It happened because of the activities that I was involved in. So there's a lot of intellectual dishonesty when it comes to discussing black issues. I watched the movie and and cinematically, aesthetically, artistically, I loved it. Historically, uh, that's a different story right there. You know, it's, 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 it's kind of bad because we, we kind of been steered in a way to rely on Hollywood and entertainment for our sources of, of history and we're going wrong. What are your thoughts on that, the historical inaccuracies? There? Well, I, I, I want to address your first point of we have decided that the police are uniform, are unifying force. And I don't think we decided that. I, I think white liberals decided that. And popular culture controlled by white liberals decided that uh, our engagement with the police is our unifying force. And so we've accepted that. But I think, again, I just go back to if we really evaluate our lives, you know, and, and what had been, to me, what, what had been uh, our unifying force was struggle for freedom through relying on Christianity and religious faith as we struggled for freedom. That had been our unifying force. And uh, now we've reduced it down to the police have, the, the, they've told us the police have limited your freedom. You're not free. And because of the police, and I, I'm, I was no angel, Curtis. I mean, I, I'm not, I was no gangster, but I was certainly no angel. I mean, I could sit here and go over all the things I've done throughout my life that could have potentially put me at odds with the police. But it's just not that hard to avoid the police. And it, it just isn't a defining, my relationship with them just isn't a defining, and, and I say that having had a cousin killed by sheriffs, but as it relates to your point about the historical, I, I'm going to be honest, after I did all my research for a movie, I thought they actually did a decent job with the history. I, I mean, for a movie. Now, trust me, did they distort it? No question. 
But did they just run wild the way I've seen movies run wild? I don't think so. What I think was missing was any kind of perspective, context. I don't think the history was framed properly. And I'll give you the biggest example of something I shared with, with some of my boys uh, yesterday was that uh, Fred Hampton's assassination, because I will agree with that narrative that he was assassinated. Fred Hampton was murdered. I would agree with that. On December 4th, 1969, I believe the police working with the FBI intended on killing Fred Hampton, and they did it. However, what the movie doesn't make clear is that it's 1969, and in July, Fred Hampton's Black Panther Party out of Chicago got in a shootout with the police in July of 1969. And I believe in that first shootout, uh, maybe one cop got killed and six got injured and three Black Panthers, I think, were beat up after the police arrested them. But one cop killed, I believe, and six, this is off the top of my head, and six wounded. And then in November, and Fred Hampton was in jail uh, in July when it happened, but in November of 1969, they got in a shootout with the Black Panthers. Two cops were killed, maybe five wounded. And uh, the Black Panthers had one killed and one wounded. And so if you tallied up the scoreboard uh, in November of 1969, the Black Panthers had whooped the police ass twice in shootouts. They had semi-automatic weapons. The police were working with revolvers, or I don't know, muskets, I don't know what. <laughs> the police were outgunned. And so, Curtis, I don't know what neighborhood you grew up in specifically, but generally speaking, when any group of people get their ass kicked twice, the third time they're like, nah, we're not playing around. <laughs> we're we gonna get some get back. And so I, I just don't, I don't know any black men or women who think we're going to kill over the course of a summer or over the course of six, seven months, we're going to kill three police officers, wound eight, nine, ten others, and we're going to take one death and four injuries and not expect the police to be like, oh, no, we're we getting y'all. And so I'm not justifying what the police did, but this is just human nature, man, and it's just like, Logic, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And if you want to go keep having shootouts with the police, eventually the police are going to put their foot down and, and get some get back. That's, that's the way the disciples work. That's the way the bloods and the crips work. Uh, it's the way most men have operated. The Hatfields and McCoys, most men, you kill us twice? And so... I just, Fred Hampton, Fred Hampton was assassinated on December 4th. I'm not going to reject that. But I think he and his group fomented and created the atmosphere for him to be assassinated. See, when, when I watched the film, I saw a couple things. Fred became the chairman of the party at 20 years old. That's real young, man. 
Um, that was in 1967. Mm -mm, mm -mm. Black Panthers, I, I think, now let me, I know you deep on the, I don't think they started in Chicago until 1968. Well, they, they, the, the documentary I watched claimed he became the chairman in 1967. But whatever, whatever it was, his run was short, even if yes. it was 68. Because even in 69, he spent about four months in prison. So his tenure was very, very short. And uh, the killing in November of the two police officers, I think sealed his fate. I definitely, because he spoke at the, the Panthers funeral and he paid homage to his fallen comrade. So here's a, here's a man who was killed by the police, who killed some police, and you are constantly having this, um, this anti-police narrative. Deserved or undeserved, doesn't matter, because now you're at war. It's, when I see some of the clips and the things that were being said, it's not even a matter of judging justification or not. It seemed like it was an open war between the police and the Panthers. And, and based on the uh, casualties, it wasn't a one-way war. It was a two-way. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you, you know, so so that that much we know. You know, everything else is the is you know is up to the person who's telling the story. But I think I think he was really young. As far as, as the Marxism part, Jason, can it not be said that the entire civil rights movement had socialist Marxist undertones? I certainly think by the end of Dr. King's uh, run, and, and, and I certainly think that people, and again, obviously I wasn't even alive, uh, but I think people that were smart and J. Edgar Hoover, he, he saw it before it became obvious. Like, hey man, there's Marxist communist undertones here. A lot of their money and support is coming from Russia. Uh, and again, at that time, we're still in the middle of a, a cold war. And so I, I think that that was the other thing where I say, you know, for a movie, they did a fine job, but they did take some historical liberties because I'm trying to, the way they portrayed J. Edgar Hoover, did they have notes on that? Is there some secret tape recordings or did they just make that all up? I think it might've been creative license based on second or third hand accounts. You know, there is a lot of um, emotion in filmmaking. Yeah, okay, let me, let me say this though, because I don't have a doubt that J. Edgar Hoover had some racism in his part of his personality. But I also know the guy was a committed anti-communist in America at that time. The political structure, the people running things in, in America were committed anti-communists. And so if as black people, we raised our hand and said, man, we're going to align with the communists in our fight for freedom. Well, we just, we just joined the opposite team. <laughs> we, we just raised our hand and said, we plan for the Soviet Union 
and the whole country is at war. There's a cold war going on. I horrible strategy. It, 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 you just put yourself at odds with your country. And so I, I thought it was kind of silly in the movie where they had Hoover or someone talking to, to the FBI agent saying, you know, what are you going to do when your daughter dates a Negro? And, 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 and I'm just, come on, man. I, look, trust me, I don't have any doubt these guys had some racism, but that's really not how racism plays out at that level. Those guys to me, were out to get the communists. And any, any, they're trying to squelch communism from taking power. And if Black people in our pursuit of freedom have chosen the communist path, we put ourselves at odds with the government. And, and so I, I just, I think for a lot of us as Black people, I don't think we understand Marxism, communism, uh, the level of exploitation, the hostility towards religious beliefs, uh, the, the hostility towards freedom. And so it, it is the antithesis of America. And so I'm all for fighting for freedom, civil disobedience and protests and blah, blah, blah. But should I think we've been more vigilant about, hey, let, let's not get in bed with the communists. And I understand desperation makes strange bedfellows or whatever, but you got to understand like what your country is about and make sure that, you know, everything you're doing doesn't violate the, the central tenets of this country. And, and particularly at that time, we're no longer this, but we were a Judeo-Christian country at that time. And Marxism is a very secular hostile to religion, uh, I don't know, uh, philosophy, ide ideology. Uh, and, and so I look at us now and why, this has all become popular now. You know, socialism, communism, you ain't gotta be ashamed of it now. And our young people, particularly African, very secular, very hostile to, to any religion. And that's where I think uh, there's great danger for us because, again, I go back to what I said at the very beginning of this. The left is actually in control of our culture. And I watch movies like this and I go, man, we're pigs being led to slaughter. Because, again, if, if we think we're going to win a war with the police, we're batshit crazy. And so the whole defund the police and everybody running around with this hostility towards police, we're not going to win that. The government has given them a license to kill and don't fool yourself into believing that license is going to be revoked. That's a trap. You know, you said a lot about communism. A lot of people don't know that... Um, Thurgood Marshall was recruited by the FBI as an informant against socialist communists within the NAACP, right? And this is a historical fact. What is it about communism that has been appealing to so many black freedom fighters 
activists and the like, not just at the turn of the 20th century, but all the way up to today. What do you think it is? What's driving them to that? And who introduced them? Because don't know black people know any Russians. You know, so I mean, <laughs> Russian agents, like who, who, who's the bridge here that's, well, that's indoctrinating black people with this nonsense? Well, I mean, look, uh, the Soviet Union, Russia, Stalin, go all the way back in competition with America uh, has understood that in the propaganda war, America's treatment of African-Americans is a great tool. I mean, this has been going on basically since the Emancipation Proclamation. And so Black people starving for freedom, being denied it during Jim Crow, uh, being denied it throughout the 50s and 60s, and, and clearly before then, here are communists smart looking for a way to push back against America, against Western civilization. Go, man, look at y'all's treatment of black people. Look, we don't have racism and communism. They sell that bullshit. Uh, and so you got a starving man, the black man, and here's some communists saying, hey, we got some food for you. Communist, we'll take, you know, communism, you know, it's all equality. Uh, see, that's capitalism is evil. And Fred Hampton in... The actual footage I saw from him in the 1960s, not movie, just me watching that documentary, actual footage, you know, he was selling that myth. That, he even used proletariat in yeah, his proletariat. <laughs> yeah, look, I saw it. <laughs> they called each other comrades. I mean, they were all in on, oh my God. He, in, in the documentary, he called several times communism utopia. We can get to utopia, communism, blah, blah. And so when, and I get it, like you grow up during that time period and you feel like you're denied freedom and and someone is saying, oh, man, I got the perfect little system. Uh, everybody's equal and we all share and there's no competition and capitalism's evil and that's why you've been exploited. And and it it makes sense on the surface. And, you know, we don't do a very good job of uh, explaining, teaching actual true American history. And then we allow the far left to basically take over the educational system and people that are sympathetic to communism. Because just think about the mindset of a teacher. You know, you're not going to make a lot of money. You, so you're not really a capitalist. You, you, you just want to do good. You want everybody to feel good and everybody to feel equal and blah, blah, blah. And so the educational system is ripe for the communist message to seep in. And uh, for us as Black people, it, 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 it sounds... Curtis, just think of out of the oppression and plunder that we did experience, Think of all the things we have grasped on to looking for a solution in terms. So, I mean, no disrespect to anybody from the nation of Islam is listening. I don't mean no disrespect, but just think about the things Elijah Muhammad taught spaceship and you know, all this stuff and people bought it out of desperation. And, and again, I have some respect for the nation of Islam and their ability 
to rehabilitate and, and take people from a jailhouse mentality to a more self-responsibility mentality. But, you know, if, if we can buy Elijah Muhammad's spaceship, surely there's some of us that will buy, oh, well, communism, socialism, Marxism, that's the solution. That, that's, desperation has made us prone to listening to that and a lack of true understanding that, look, man, America flawed. But the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, were intended to fix those flaws. And if you understand the history, it has been fixing America's flaws. We've been promoting more and more freedom for more people over the course of the history of this country because of the Declaration of Independence, because of the Constitution. And it, it sounds hokey. We've become so cynical and so woke that you know everybody, Thomas Jefferson, all these people were just the devil and nothing that they did. You know, look, if, if, and this is what's so crazy. I tell people all the time, man, you gotta accept the truth from wherever it comes. If, the, if a KKK guy told me today that today is Tuesday and it's a fact, I'm not gonna dismiss it and be like, well, he's in the KKK, it's not Tuesday. Well, it actually is Tuesday. He told me a fact here. And so we just had, there's some things the founding fathers did that were absolutely 1000% on point. And we need to accept that. You know, uh, the, the, the communist aspect, I think a lot of people in America have to at least be understanding of how traumatized some black people were and how limited they were in their ability to interpret the pressures they were under and adequately address them, right? So we know, you and I both know that communism doesn't work for black people. Let's get that out the way, okay? <laughs> I would love for some of these black folks to go to you Russia, know. go to China, and see how we treat it over there. But yes, it does not work. But in the same token, when, you, when you're dealing with fearful, uneducated people, um, and that's not to say all black people are uneducated, but when you talk about things like the NOI and believing in spaceships and 13 foot men from Mars and, and so on and so forth, there's a certain deficiency in education there that makes you, you know, gullible to these things. I think, I think we need to do a better job, and I'm talking about America, to make black people feel like this can work for you. You know, uh, this is for you. It's not perfect, but trust me, there's nothing better out there. Is anyone making that sale or it's just whatever? Yeah, no, I do think, I do think people are making that sale. I mean, I, seriously, I, and maybe they need to make a better sale. But again, when you sit there and say, hey man, we fought a civil war for four or five years mm -hmm. and lost a lot of people. Uh, we went through a civil rights movement and lost a lot of people. People laid their li lives on the line. Uh, we've enacted affirmative action laws and we've done a number of things to try to push the ball forward. And 
to be honest with you, Curtis, I believe that my generation, I was born in 67, one year before Dr. King was assassinated. And I felt like it was our generation. We had to run with the ball and go out and take advantage of all the freedoms my parents and their parents created for us. And I feel like my generation didn't run with the ball. We got distracted by the great society and uh, we fell in love with a marketing scheme by the left and the Democratic Party. And we're so caught up in who likes us rather than whose policies provide the most freedom for us. And I, you know, I'm one of these weird people that, you know, isn't out, I don't care about being liked. I, I, and it comes from my father. I just, I just want freedom. Get out of my way, give me freedom, and I'm going to take care of me and mine. Uh, but a lot of us think that I had a friend, a very respected friend, smart dude, tell me that uh, he makes his political decisions based on whether he likes the candidate or not. Policies are secondary. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, man. I can't judge any man other than the one in the mirror. I know all of my dirt. So I really don't care. I'm not sitting around trying to make value judges on who's a good person, bad person. Blah. The only thing that matters is do the policies interfere with my freedom? And, you know, again, I, I'm a non-voter, but I'm just trying to tell this dude how to evaluate, again, getting caught up in who you like and don't like. I think is one of our biggest uh, flaws, and and it, it and it's uh, it's residue from slavery, from Jim Crow, that we still don't have enough confidence to believe that we actually control our own destiny, and so well, that's why we're so obsessed with who likes us and who doesn't like us, and. What we haven't been able to figure out is uh, there are people who like their dogs and treat their dogs very well, but I'm not a dog and I don't want a master. I don't want someone to take me out to potty. I don't want someone determining how much food I get, when I get fed, when I take a bath. <laughs> That's and so we're caught up in like, and, and, and so I would, you know, if you're caught up, that's like a little puppy. You're going to be an infant for whoever likes you is going to treat you the best. I want the ability uh, to create my own destiny and to be in control of my own destiny. And so I, I just, it's, it's the residue. And I just think being liked is so overrated. And, and it's such a misunderstanding of America because I've been on this kick lately of trying to explain to people, America promises freedom. That's it. It doesn't promise you love. It doesn't promise to even like you. Life is hard. 
And so all I want is the freedom because I like myself and given some freedom, I'm going to make the most of that. And so I, I just think we almost have a, funda mis a fundamental misunderstanding of what America actually has to offer, freedom. And once you understand that, then you'll have an aversion to communism, Marxism, socialism, and all that anti-God bullshit that the far left is in love with. Because all of those things are adversaries to freedom. Do you think we're targeted for such indoctrination as a means to control us? Because if we've been doing this for 60 years and beyond, and nothing's improving, how do you justify continuing on that path? I do think we are manipulated. And I do think that uh, the, the institutions controlled by the far left, the educational system, Hollywood, popular culture, uh, those, they have a clear message of of you, black people don't self-determine. Your destiny is controlled by the treatment of white people. And we have been, and again, what I see, and this is why I couldn't stand this movie, is because I grew up in a little bitty Baptist church in Indianapolis, 25th Street Baptist Church. My grandmother, uh, family, my mom, family, all, we all grew up in this church. And we were all taught to believe that if God was on our side, we couldn't fail. And that if we embrace these religious tenets and follow them, we could do whatever we wanted to in America. And I'm, that was a powerful message that got black people through slavery, through Jim Crow, got us through the civil rights movement, created all of this freedom that's to me started in 1970s, late 1960s or whatever. And I think that the puppet masters, again, the great marketing scheme of the left and, and Democrats was that uh, we, we've been, no, the government is responsible for you, owes you a debt, and you should look to the government, not yourself, not God, to be your primary provider. We got a check for you, welfare check, get the husband out of the house, and we're going to instant, you know, we, we just keep looking for the government to do more and more and more and more, and it's a mistake, and uh, we, we bought that marketing deal, like the, they just reinvented themselves, and the government is now our God and Jesus, and I, I just, government's what did I call? They're pig farmers. They feed you slop and they fatten you up for slaughter. As soon as they're done with you, they discard you. They're going to feed you a bunch of garbage. And eventually they're going to exploit you. That's what governments do. I'm, again, that's where my uh, aversion to even getting involved with politics because I just don't trust the government to, to do better for me than I'm going to do for myself. Uh, and we, we don't have that fundamental understanding. I, we sit around and talk about systemic racism. <laughs> well, if, if, if the only people that can be in charge of systemic racism is the government, but 
those are the that's the group we think is going to save us. It, it's crazy. That's a deep point there. You know, I I hear you talk about your your Christian foundation. So I uh, I'm assuming you attribute your success career wise and in life to that foundation from that church on 25th street in Indianapolis. <laughs> right. Um, no, there's no question. Yeah. Okay. And, and so again, it's where my fearlessness comes from. Mm -hmm. And, and that's to me, one of the main purposes of religious faith. I see so many people walking around scared to do anything. They, fear controls them. They're unwilling to step out on faith. And so I, I go look at Martin Luther King and that generation and the courage, the amazing, because people can talk shit all they want. I, I wouldn't have took that ass whooping. Oh, you know, Martin Luther King and them, blah, blah. That's, you ain't got their balls. That's why you would. You, you don't have their courage. These were people that had intense and a legitimate belief in God and withstood some things so that you and I could be free and experience, you know, the freedoms that America provides, they had immense courage. And so I, I look now as we become a more and more secular people and country, and I see fear in control of everything. And, you know, all, I mean, we're running around and again, I, I'm all for wearing a mask, you know, I guess to, uh, but this this little passion that we have for, oh, I'm not going to leave my house. And oh, my God, the coronavirus is the worst thing in the world. And, man, have y'all ever, I mean, just go look at history, man. Human beings have survived much worse than the coronavirus. I, I'm going to give you, I was watching some documentary about American history. And I, I'm going to screw it up because I don't think it was smallpox. But George Washington, them, they fight in the Revolutionary War. And it was smallpox or some disease that the African slaves taught them how to combat the disease. And it actually saved George Washington, them. They were trapped somewhere over the winter and the, the ravaged by smallpox or whatever the disease was. And it was the African slaves that ta taught them how to combat it, I, I'd have to go back. And, but again, we have been such a central part of America's rise and success that st stuff that we're just completely unaware of, our role in helping America become a better and better and better place. And I, I just, I, I wish we, you know, j j the fear, the, the, the whole, I just wish we knew who we were, really were. And we're getting reprogrammed. And I, I look at this movie and I just go, this is more of the reprogramming process. And like that movie, American Skin, that I watched, part of the uh, you know reprogramming process. <laughs> I, I just, we're being fed poison. We're being fed movies and things over social media that are determined to keep us on our knees and to keep us on that leash. Well, let's move on to your career and how your foundation helped set you up. How long have you been a journalist, Jason? 
I graduated college in 1990. Uh, and so, and, you know, got my first job in the summer of 1990 in Bloomington, Indiana, uh, $5 an hour part-time work. That's all I was qualified for. I was, I was a bit of a social animal in college and you know, played football and socialized and I had to play catch up when I graduated. And how long have you been on television? When was your first TV gig? I, my first local TV gig was probably in Kansas City, uh, probably in 1996, I would think. And then I think by 1998 or 99, uh, I started going on the sports reporters with Dick Shep uh, for ESPN. Um, and so that's pretty much two decades of you've been on television over 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. Now you move around a lot, but not a lot, but you move around. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Look, um, but, I want to explain that for a second, though, because I really, look, man, my first job was in Bloomington, Indiana for five dollars an hour. Mm -hmm. I was trying to get out of that as quick as possible. Got out in a year. Uh, my second job was in Charlotte, North Carolina for four hundred three dollars a week. I'm a big boy. Four hundred three dollars a week. That don't that don't do much for me. So I did that for a year and a half. Then I got to Ann Arbor, Michigan, making about thirty five, forty thousand dollars a year. Did that for two years, and then I got my big break getting a job at the Kansas City Star, and I worked there for 16 straight years. And, uh, you know, did I do some other things while I was there, side jobs, yeah, radio and things like that, and I've worked twice at ESPN and Fox Sports, and the key word is twice. Because people are, oh, Whitlock got fired from ESPN. I was about to go there. But go, go, go ahead. <laughs> what they never tell you is Whitlock got rehired at ESPN and Fox Sports. That's an indication. So when a girl takes you back, generally speaking, it's because like, oh, man, you must have done something right. You must have hit it right a few times. <laughs> Why else is she taking you back? And so... Uh, I, I think the fact that, and, and uh, I hate to say this because it drives my, I really don't hate to say it, but I'm going to say it, it's going to drive people crazy, but both of them places would hire me for a third time. And so uh, all this like, oh, Whitlock's hard to manage or hard to deal with, it's all BS. In any place I've worked, I've done a great job, a good enough job that they're willing to rehire me. So you're not getting fired, you're leaving on good terms. Not all the time. I got fired at ESPN once, yeah. twice, twice, twice. First time I really wanted to get fired because I thought it was going to help my brand. And so that was somewhat orchestrated. Uh, and then the second time I got fired, you know, in a political thing with the undefeated, you know, the left was not going to have me running uh, a website. Uh, that talked about sports and race because, you know, I wouldn't stick to the narrative. But uh, look, man, I chase opportunities and I chase opportunities to do things at the highest level. You know, I, I left Fox Sports after five years of doing television for them on great terms with all those people, but I wanted a bigger challenge and bigger opportunity. They wanted to retain me. We just happen to disagree over 
how much that retention was going to cost. They wanted to stick with the status quo. I felt like I had earned a raise and I had earned an opportunity to, to do an even better a show with more upside. We disagree. And so I moved on to OutKick. And uh, I should have vetted that OutKick. I got to ask you, right? Um, yeah. Have you, was that your first stab at being an entrepreneur? Because you had ownership in OutKick, correct? Yes. It was, let me think this through, definitely my first shot at being an entrepreneur and it's something that I'm passionate about because my dad was an entrepreneur and it's something I believe in but yes that was my first opportunity now um I gotta be honest uh, you might yep. everything but I never went on outkick one time right I retweeted stuff that you posted on your timeline for outkick but to actually log on outkick I've never done it because I had never heard of OutKick before, Jason Whitlock, but that's not saying a whole lot because I'm not, you know, yep. I, I'm not into all these different avenues and so on. But what was your impact on OutKick? Because the night before you interviewed Trump at the White House, we were all at the uh, Trump International. And I remember Clay saying to someone about how the traffic that you you created crashed the website or something like that? Yeah, look, uh, I this is why I don't feel like exiting FS1 for OutKick was a mistake, even though I've now exited OutKick. And the reason I say that is because over the course of the six months I was at OutKick, I was able to prove that my voice, my point of view, my perspective, what I had to say could get traction and would matter regardless of platform. It, 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 I, I don't need to be on ESPN to have my voice heard. I don't need to be on some major network to have my voice heard. My point of view and is written and delivered in a unique way that allows me to matter regardless of platform. And so, you know, I had tremendous impact when I was at OutKick. And uh, I'm sure that drove the, the ad money, the ad revenue up significantly, you know? Yeah, no, I, the business at OutKick on the surface and was going the business at OutKick was going well. The, the foundation, in my view, was, was very weak and not built on authentic trust and transparency. Now, now I read your Q&A that you did. Um, I can't recall the source. You know, you had- Front office sports. Front office sports, I read that. And I, I, I do recall that you said your stake in OutKick required no financial commitment on your part. Was that correct? Yes, the, the, the Washington Post uh, reported that I paid 500,000 for my stake mm -hmm. in OutKick. They got it from a bad source who made some really bad assumptions. 
based off of his conversations, in my view, with Clay Travis. Uh, I it would be silly for me, given uh, what I was bringing to the table, giving my brand and where I was in my career uh, to give up cash to go bring my value to OutKick. Not, not to diminish what Clay had done, but OutKick, uh, I was doing OutKick a favor, joining OutKick. And uh, so my equity was based off of what the work I was gonna produce and the brand that I'd already built and the visibility I could provide OutKick and the demand for me to be on, <clears throat> you know, these other television networks that offered opportunities to uh, promote OutKick. And so, yeah, I got my, my stake in OutKick was 20 to 25%, depending on some different factors. And it was based off of, you know, my sweat, the work that I was going to Sweat equity. Yeah. yeah. Now, Sam Savage, he was required to put in 500,000 cash, correct? Required is a strong word. <laughs> uh, as it was presented to me uh, in May, throughout May, as I was talking with Clay, Clay and Sam uh, both told me that he was getting a 10% stake in OutKick for a $500,000 investment. And, uh, you know, it was later told to me that things were going so well since I arrived that he no longer needed to invest that 500000 and he was still going to get a 10% stake in OutKick. And that sounded crazy to me. Uh, you know, I, I have it in writing, in emails. I have it, my lawyer has it in writing, whatever. The dude was supposed to put up $500,000 to get us 10% stake in OutKick. And, uh, you know, when I first heard about this, when it was first brought to my life, he ain't putting up the money, you know, I was like, oh, this, this has got to be a joke or it's going to work itself out. You know, Clay's not going to allow this. And um, soon, as I asked more and more questions, it became clear, like, wow, they really trying to put one over on your boy. <laughs> like, I'm supposed to be good with this. Were they, were they, are they, are they more than business partners? Are they friends? Do they have a long history? Uh, why was Clay so, um, you know? That, that, that's tough for me to answer because it was presented to me that no, they don't have a long history. That, you know, Clay and I have a much longer history, more communication. Mm -hmm. uh, but, 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 you know, honestly, Curtis, what I think happened is, as, as I don't think anybody was prepared, perhaps other than me, for the impact that I was going to have on OutKick. And sometimes uh, it can set off insecurity. If, and, and sometimes, uh, it can make people change up. And it's like, whoa, 
you know, everybody's talking about Whitlock. It, 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 it can make you fearful of me. I've always, that, that's, people get scared of me, just to be quite honest with you. Uh, they don't trust for some reason, what, you know, I'm a very, I, I was very loyal to Clay and very willing to uh, play the number two position, even though my talents and reputation and work probably said I shouldn't be a number two anywhere in the sports media world. Uh, but I was very willing to do that because that's what I signed up for. And, and more than anything, I'm a man of my word. And so I knew this was Clay's deal. I moved to Nashville, his hometown, more than willing to play the number two. I, I'm not sure if, if he fully bought it. And so eventually when I started asking questions, Curtis, about, hey, look, what's going on here? This is, this is crazy. The Sam Savage guy uh, offered up to me and Clay a stake. He told us we could have a stake in his consulting company, Savage Ventures. I, I didn't want a stake in Savage Ventures. I have no interest in Savage Ventures and his consulting firm. It was started in January of 2020, two or three months before COVID and the shutdown. I didn't see any value there. I'm not sure. Maybe Clay did see some value there. And so I, I don't know. I'd have to speculate. I haven't been told this, but maybe he did. I, I, I remember talking to Clay about it, and I remember making my point of view very clear. Why do I want to own some stake in Savage Venture? And why is this dude even offering it up to us? And it was, he was offering it up because I kept saying, hey, man, we're paying Savage Ventures 42000 a month. This is Which crazy. Is about a half a million a year. Yeah. <laughs> at, at the very least, he could have provided that service for free. For <laughs> I'm providing mine for, you know, but it, it's, and so I, I don't know. So perhaps at some point there was a pivot, total speculation on my part. I, I don't know, but maybe Clay found value in Sam's offer of we could have a stake in Savage Ventures. And maybe that increased their alliance. Maybe that, because I've never been able to understand, well, you know, Clay said, oh, my God, we'd have to sue Sam to get him out of the company. It's like, so? <laughs> the guy's not, if a guy doesn't put up what he said he's supposed to put up. Yeah, that's a breach of contract because it's in writing, correct? It was to me. And I got emails, Clay's lawyer, asking about the half million dollars like hey you know we need to address this this is like in august and so i'm gonna tell you one of the funny things I i'm looking at people say man whitlock why would you do that interview uh people may watch this and be like why would you even talk about it you know take the high road man i've been dealing with this issue since like august so the high road to me was, look at the work that I put in once this became an issue of me trying to work through, like, I'm going to get these guys to work. I'm going to show them the, where this company could really go. I'm going to try to work through this. These are younger guys. They're younger than me. You know, Sam may be 18 years younger than me. I, I can't remember. It may be 35. Clay's 10, 11 years younger than me. 
I'm gonna let's let them mature and grow up and hopefully they'll see the light. And you put in all that work and you you elevate the the the, the company and I couldn't get them to see it. And so after, you know, by the time we got to November, I'm like, hey, man, if this ain't fixed, I'm just out. There's just no way the guy's going to walk out on a half million dollar commitment, charges 42000 a month, and I'm just going to be good with it. It's just, that's just not, that's, I just can't, I Did can't do it. you feel you were disrespected? Disrespected. That, let me answer it this way. I, <laughs> at some point, I, I you know go over to Sam Savage's office, and, and and the guy walks me. He walks me through. He doesn't know he's walking me through. I'm a journalist. I'm pretty good at talking to people and finding out. So I walk him through what happened and his mindset, and he tells me that me coming to Outkick was a kick in the nuts. <laughs> and that was all I needed to know in terms of like, wow, this dude thinks adding someone that adds tremendous value to Outkick somehow diminishes him. And so he was upset, clearly to me, that, and he said so, that he thought we should all have a third, 33% of Outkick. And I was just like, hey, man, that's just crazy. You don't bring that kind of value. Uh, you know, talent in this industry trumps everything. Uh, and so I, I don't know, because I, I wouldn't say disrespected because I would have to respect the opinion of the person doing shady shit and, and or saying something disrespectful. Uh, I did enough homework uh, once this became an issue. And this is where I really fought myself. Should have been very much more deliberate in my process. Because if I had done any homework on Sam Savage uh, and some of his previous work, people were willing to be transparent about him. And if I had done that, beforehand, I wouldn't have made the mistake I made. He said it was a, like a kick in the nuts. <laughs> and, every, and everyone should have a third. Why did he feel your arrival was like a kick in the nuts when his stake was supposed to be 10%, yours 20 to 25, which leaves Clay with 65% or more? Was he was he bothered more by your presence and your twenty five percent than Clay's sixty five percent? I feel like he had a workaround as it relates to Clay, because clearly he talked Clay into forgiving the half million bucks, and he he. He had something, and again, I, I don't know, but he had something where he had more control. Not only did he, he, he didn't, he forgave the half million, then he got to charge us 42,000 a month. And then basically he had final say-so, not in writing, but in reality and the way things executed. And so he worked around, whatever his issues with Clay were, 
he worked around them. Couldn't work around his issues with me because I was coming at him directly and saying, this is intolerable. Uh, and so the, he and Clay both, uh, we had a meeting out at Clay's house and they, they had written up these little projections on how much money we were gonna make when we sold this thing. And that was their, they kept looking at me like, don't you see on this piece of paper how much money we're gonna make? Let it go. And I'm like, hey man, these are projections on a piece of paper. That's not money in my bank account. They're projections. And I'm just like, y'all just don't know me, man. I'm not, I like money, but it does not control me. I'm talented enough, I'm gonna go get some more money, I believe, or I'm gonna die trying. And uh, I was just like, I I'm not, and so, what I just came to come to came to come to find out in that moment, it's like the, the, these there's no depth here. This is just can, can we pump and dump? Can we uh, inflate the value of this thing and sell it to somebody as quick as possible? And look how much money we're gonna make. And that's that. And Isn't I'm that the like, game though? That's the game. There, no question for non-journalists. I'm a journalist, Curtis. I've never heard that. I've never denied that. The, the, my, my career is littered with people that think money is gonna fix X, Y, and Z for Whitlock. And, and Curtis, I like money. I'm, uh, but I like journalism. I like being involved in projects that are based in journalism. And I just like honesty. And, and so, I'm, I just, someone that just flat out lied to me or pulled a scam on me, me just working with them day in and day out, tough for me to, to be happy at work every day and to produce the kind of content that makes me proud and makes this worthwhile for me to do. And so I, I trust me, in this era we live in, I know I sound crazy. Everything's just about the money. You know, it's, if you sell drugs, that's good. If you sell pussy, that's good. <laughs> If you sell, <clears throat> what if you, as long as you're making money, is you can make rap songs promoting all kinds of everything. As long as you're making money, it's all good. Cardi B is right there with Rosa Parks in a lot of people's mind. Well, she makes money, and so I'm just not built that way. You, you know what I don't want, but what I what I wonder is why, right? Because I'm putting myself in Clay's position. I've been I've been in a partnership with two other people who were bumping heads, right? And I'm wondering why, if, if he really, if I really believe, I'm not gonna speak for Clay or on Clay, but if I really believed these big projections and I, I recognize your value and I don't wanna rock the boat. It sounded like, you know, there was some apprehension about rocking the boat if they pressed the line there. They wanted to get that score before something happened. Why not? I think Clay could have paid the 500,000 for him and you would have never known where it came from just to keep the peace. Or he could have given you a larger stake 
so his boy wouldn't have to put up money. I think Clay had the power to resolve this. And all it would require is that he dig in his own pocket. But when that didn't happen, they didn't care about projections anymore. And I, it may sound like I'm biased here. I might be because you're a friend, but I'm also a strategist and a businessman. And I don't think the argument you're making is actually pro-Whitlock. The yes. argument that you're making is they ran a hustle on me, Whitlock. That's what you're basically telling me. Man, look, Clay man. hustled you. If they were really serious about that, yeah. all he had to do was give you a larger stake, give you another 5% or whatever, you and him work it out, or keep his boy Sam smooth. Look, Sam, you don't have to put up the money. I'll put it up for you. He won't know it's coming from you. That would have kept the peace. They would have made the big score and got that those projections. Instead, if they really believed that, why did they let it fall apart so fast? insecurity i go back to that's incredible to me no it's I not never let People that fall by ego man i would have you, never let that fall apart you're in your 50s you're in your 50s correct, correct. and so yeah. a lot of people want to be the star want to be the unquestioned star uh a lot of people have don't have a lot of depth and uh, just insecurity would be what I would put my finger on. And uh, I, I'll just say this. Uh, if, if, if your slogan is don't be a pussy and you got to wear it on the front of your shirt, you really tell it on yourself. Yeah, okay. Because again, I don't have to put it on my chest. Everybody knows I'm not a pussy. You know, I don't have to tell nobody. That's what I tell people. You know, it's it's bizarre because a lot of people, right, they seem to almost revel in what they perceive to be your misfortune. And I don't know the the details of your business because you don't discuss your finances with me. But I do know one thing that, um, you walk away from situations that other people would die to be in. And not many men, much less black men, have that kind of confidence and power in this, in, in this, in this uh, economic structure that we're in. People get jobs where they make six figures, much less seven figures and or eight figures. And man, they're ready to be there till, till the till they retire, you know what I mean? And I think it takes a certain amount of courage to just say, you know what? Um, I can do I can do this or better somewhere else. And with that note, what's the next step for you? Uh, I'm still in the process of hashing things out, but I'm going to do something where uh, I have a level of ownership and a level of control uh, and a level of I can eat what I kill. Um, and it's going to be journalistically sound. It's going to be uh, based in trying to 
promote a message that brings us all together and uh, tries to make sense of the racial game that's being played on the American people, black and white. Uh, and, you know, it, it's going to, uh, you know, I, 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 the reason why the process is taking a while, because, you know, I learned a lesson about not being deliberate and not doing the due diligence, but I feel confident with the people I've been talking to and the people that have been helping me that, uh, you know, I'm going to do something that helps bring black and white people together and helps uh, eventually elevate voices of all colors, but particularly black voices that are willing to stand on truth and uh, black voices that aren't running around got all oh my God, I hope Twitter loves whatever I say. And uh, because that's our only hope as black people and I think as a country to fix these issues is there's gotta be a media platform out there where the truth can be aired and then people can make informed decisions based off of the truth. And so, uh, you know, in that front office interview, there was, you know, speculation about me and the blaze or speculation about me and Fox news. Uh, and, you know, that speculation isn't, it isn't inaccurate, but it's not uh, in totality. Uh, everything that I'm considering or uh, thinking about doing. Would you consider having partners again? Is it, or would you have to go it alone? I believe in partnership in terms of what I'm doing. If you want to have unity, partnership is good. And so uh, you know, for, for one of the th reasons I did the OutKick thing is because at the end of the day, I'm a content creator. And if I can just focus on creating content, I can be successful. And so I need the help, in my view, of people that know how to deliver, promote content, package content, build the business relationship. I, I just need to be in a position where I can create content and have the rest of the business uh, handled by others. Do you think because it was your first um, entrepreneurial step outside of the structure of journalism that you usually worked within that um, perhaps you even underestimated your own impact? Or did you expect it? No, Curtis, I think you, you that's a curveball question, but it's a great one. Because I did underestimate my impact. I, I thought, knew I would be successful, but this rig job that's been done by social media is just, it's just a new animal that I, I have no, uh, I didn't have an understanding of. And, and so, 
Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and all that, and the, the games that they play had me a bit fearful of like, am I really, is it going to cut through like it always cuts through? And so, yeah, I did exceed my own expectations. That's why I feel more confident this time around. Uh, but I did underestimate, yeah. You know, I, I kind of figured that. I, I didn't know it, but I figured it. And I feel like, um, I feel like in the long run, those guys did you a favor. Because now you, you've tested the waters and you've gauged things and you're even um, more impactful than you thought you were. So now the next situation, I'm sure you're gonna negotiate things a little bit differently and make sure there's certain um, safety measures put in place so you don't have those type of issues again, you know, but uh, Myself, man, I'm inspired by you. I, I'm not a journalist anywhere near your rank, but you know, you 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 give me some pointers, man, and I and, and some opportunities, and I'm grateful, man, and I I wish you all the best. And I tell you privately, and I put it out there for who don't know, anything I could do to assist Jason Whitlock, I'm here. Well, um, I'm gonna call in that marker all day, bro, all day. Because I'm. Kurt, you're one of those voices that speak the truth. And I want to elevate it and, and get you out there in a much bigger way, just because, you know, you know, I come at things from a more traditional background. You know, you, your life experience, your first, I don't know, 25, 30 years of life, uh, adds a credibility to the things that you say, uh, you know, makes people have to stop in their tracks and, and, and listen. Uh, and so I, I just, <laughs> you know, every, every guy that comes from a, I'm going to be a shady background or whatever. A checkered past. <laughs> a checkered past. There we go. A checkered past. <laughs> The, the 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 mainstream asked them, "Hey man, brag about your checkers. Tell it, celebrate your checkers. Celebrate all the craziness you did, and blah, and, and tell everybody how great it is." And you have been like, "Man, thank God I survived those checkers. Let me tell you how to avoid those checkers and make it in this world. That's a message we need." Yeah, man. Thank you, bro. Thank you. And, and man, look, thank you for your time. Did we did we cover everything? Is is there anything else you want to say? You know what? There was some there was something else in the news that I, I thought about we should talk about, but we've probably gone long enough. You know, there's a, <laughs> between the impeachment and all that. <laughs> we can do that on another day, I guess. <laughs> all right. Okay, with luck. Thanks a lot, man. Have a good day. Thank you, Curtis. All right.